Listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. Our economy is changing in the United States and across all developed nations, and a big driver of that change is technology. The advent of robots that could mass-produce goods in place of human laborers was one of the first waves of change that challenged our workforce. Now, digital technologies such as artificial intelligence pose new and different threats. Those technologies aren't just an existential crisis for middle-class jobs. They also pose challenges for society as a whole. But some researchers are looking at ways these technologies can be used to solve some of society's ills. One of those is data scientist Ruman Chowdhury, uh, the global lead for responsible AI at Accenture Applied Intelligence. She recently spoke with Detroit Today producer Jake Neer. Here's their conversation. I think as a male in my 30s, when I think of artificial intelligence, maybe the first things that I think of are either video games or, you know, the robot uprising that will end humanity. I I sort of assume that neither of those things are all that relevant to what you do on a daily basis. But what should I be thinking about when I hear about AI? Artificial intelligence um, is something that people like to think about robots and something anthropomorphized and physical. And I think what people find maybe scary is that it's it's not. It's algorithms and code that live in a cloud that invisibly shape our lives. That's that's actually, frankly, much scarier than a physical robot that you can <laughs> battle. This is something like little nudges to get you to open an app multiple times, such that suddenly you're on social media about two hours of your day. Um, or it's an app that will maybe, or a website that shows you the kinds of jobs that you should apply for. But by the way, you worry that it may be discriminating against you And you wouldn't even know because you don't know what jobs it didn't show you. Mm. So what really what we should think we should be thinking about when we think about artificial intelligence is a technology that has an amazing potential to shape the world and shape our lives for good. But we have to be careful in how we build and design it so that it's not perpetuating already existing inequalities in our society. How do you wrap your arms around that, though? How how do we go about making sure that this technology is used for good and not for ill. I mean, it it seems like that is a big question that needs to be answered right now. Yeah, absolutely. And and what I'll point out is it is an amazing time that we live in because I work at a massive corporation and I talk about things like equality and fairness, not as somebody who's working in corporate social responsibility, but in somebody who is a critical member of our global artificial intelligence team, right? So this is a very new thing that all companies and literally the world and our economies are grappling with. So bigger than technology, bigger than AI, we are seeing this move towards whatever you want to call it, right? Responsible capitalism um, or conscious capitalism, um, where where companies are realizing that to to have a long-lived organization that's viable, that attracts the right kind of talent, it's more than just making money. You have to have a mission to do better and do good. Uh, and it's it's really powerful. So AI is able to identify and highlight the flaws that exist. So so it is incorrect to say an artificial intelligence is racist or sexist. All it is doing is reflecting existing inequalities, reflecting human biases and the development programming of it. But what's beautiful is that now instead of whisper networks and stories that you hear from people, we have a, a data that backs up the things that we thought we knew anyway. 
And what that gives us is an opportunity to fix these problems. And that that's really the beauty of this technology. But you're right. We have to actually capture that potential and do something with it. So is it really up to corporations and companies to make that decision for themselves? Is there an element of government regulation that plays into that sort of mission? Because I think for many people, especially lay people, leaving it up to big corporations to, to decide that that's their mission is a scary prospect in many ways. Right. And, and rightfully so. I mean, we it's not like self-regulation is new. We are living in this the era of self-regulation v. 1.0, right, where companies said, OK, we're, we'll control ourselves. And to be perfectly honest, um, it is difficult for any corporation to do it if you are, you know, re- responsive to um, shareholders, um, you know, quarter over quarter revenue, et cetera. So some of this conscious capitalism movement is quite interesting because there's pushback coming from shareholders to say, you should do better. You should be more responsible. You should care not just about how much money you're making this quarter versus last quarter versus this time last year, but how are you impacting or har- potentially harming people? But you're right. There is a government component to it. So um, the GDPR, General Data Protection Regulation, um, is something that's actually touching everyone's life and, and for good, I would say, for the average consumer because it does give um, – consumers' ownership over their own data. Now, you have to be an EU citizen. What was really interesting about this legislation was they said that you don't have to be a company based in the EU. If you impact any consumer who is EU-based, you have to comply with this law. That's really interesting because that's that that was them speaking to Silicon Valley. Um, I actually just got back from Washington, D.C., and there is a lot of interest in the U.S. government currently. I was at um, National Institutes of Health, I was at the FTC and I was at NIST, um, National Institute for Standards and Technology. They're all really interested in in how artificial intelligence is manifesting itself in reality, and also what you know what what is within the purview of certain government bodies to understand and control. And the FTC is really at the the center of all of this, right? So they protect consumer rights. So Kamala Harris from my state of California has spoken very specifically about facial recognition, how it impacts people, and roles that certain government organizations such as NIST and the FTC can and should take on it. So there is, it will be something that comes up in the upcoming election, I think. I think one example that so many people can relate to is what's going on with Facebook right now in many ways in terms of how they're struggling with their own algorithms, how they're struggling with how to use data, lots of controversy with that company. I'm curious how you see that the way that that company is publicly, very publicly grappling with some of these issues and what that sort of means for how this plays out. I think these companies, you know, I'm just going to speculate here. They didn't think that this is what they were signing up for, which is why I think a lot of them struggled. I mean, Jack Dorsey's doing it right now with Twitter, Mark Zuckerberg with Facebook. They struggle a lot with who are we, a tech company, a media company, and they'll, they'll come out and say, no, 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 we do technology. Um, what I'll say is, you know, I, I don't know these people personally. I don't know the inner workings of their companies. Um, but before I was working at Accenture, I was teaching data science. And a lot of my students were people coming in from, um, let's say, hard science fields. Uh, and what I realized that I, I, people who are trained like myself as social scientists, my PhD is in political science. I do quantitative social science. We think of data as reflective of humanity, which is inherently messy. Um, people who come from computer science or engineering, et cetera, think of data as these sort of objective numbers. So what, what does that mean in terms of social media, et cetera? I think a lot of tech companies think they are neutral 
Um, and they will say that. They're like, we don't take sides. We're neutral. But any any good social scientist or activist knows that there is no such thing as neutrality when it comes to political statements um, or society. There's either supporting status quo or not supporting status quo. So what I think the activist community or regular people are finding problematic is it's insufficient to say we are neutral because neutral just means I support the current state of being. And right now, plenty of people are upset with status quo. And it's difficult for these corporations to then navigate, well, who do we make happy? How do we how do we make them happy, right? They actually want everyone to be happy, to be honest. How, how do we make that happen? And, and honestly, I think it's that we need, and this is going back to the idea of governments and regulations, right? We need a more objective way of looking at all of these things. So it's not just, it doesn't just feel like Jack Dorsey or Mark Zuckerberg or Sheryl Sandberg or some person is making decisions that impact the whole country, you know, and, and it's sort of a function of their individual political leanings or their biases. You're listening to Detroit Today. I'm Jake Neer. I'm talking with Dr. Rahman Chowdhury, a data scientist. She speaks about the social implications of artificial intelligence, which she says are built on biased information, as as well as her ideas on how communities can be part of developing and using AI to improve equality and mobility for all. And I I wanted to pick up on what you were just saying, uh, especially as it relates to equity. That's an interesting aspect of this conversation that, uh, you know, I don't think we discuss very often. You talked about how this technology sort of reflects society as it is. And, and when we're talking about technology and when we're talking about Facebook, when we're talking about the uh, tech companies and how they're using this, we think of it from sort of their level. Uh, I'm curious what you think about deeper than that, about the importance of how this reflects sort of the root causes of, of our social inequality. I mean, if is is that where our, the focus should be? Should it be on issues of, of poverty, of race, of gender, so forth, and less on the technology itself? Absolutely. The, the technology is a tool. We choose to wield it as, as we would like. One of the funniest and sadly most accurate Um, descriptions I've heard of Silicon Valley is that Silicon Valley seeks to answer the question, what does my mother no longer do for me? (laughs) So instead, it's true, right? Uh, You know, I I don't know what to have for dinner. I need a ride. I don't want to walk the dog. Laundry. Laundry is a big one. Right, right. Like, I don't want to do my laundry. (laughs) I don't want to clean my apartment. Um, And as tech gets, you know, quote unquote, woke, what we're finding is that plenty of these people trying to solve these problems are not the people who've been grappling with them or have the right kind of backgrounds to understand them. Um, and what is really needed is to is A, for these skills and abilities to permeate down into the very communities that are addressing these problems, and B, for tech companies, in a sense, to act, act as the mediator for other people and other organizations to shine. Um, what I would love is, you know, local communities being able to solve their own problems. And the thing is, it is all possible with technology. One of one thing that I hope we don't fall into is shoving all of this potential into pre-existing paradigms, right? So these like very aggressive binaries of, um, you know, the U.S. versus China or AI versus doctors or whatever, right? So there's all these articles like doctors will be out of jobs because AI can diagnose cancer. That's insulting to doctors. They do so much more than just diagnose disease, so let's think of these tools as enablers for people to do their own jobs better. But then that means making it accessible and understandable and making the climate and culture not one that's exclusionary to people who don't just fit one sort of paradigm. 
I'm curious how that fits in some ways to our education system in in America that it seems like when you're trying to introduce something like AI, a concept that especially people of a certain age, this is foreign in many ways to them, uh, but you have an opportunity possibly with younger folks, with people who are still in school with kids uh, to make it sort of uh, something that they, they grow up with in some, some ways in, in order to understand the implications. Absolutely. Um, so I'm deeply interested in education, period. I have been, a, I was a, in graduate school. I've really loved teaching. As I mentioned before, I joined Accenture. I was teaching at a boot camp called Metis. So boot camps are really interesting because they're an alternative education model where you do a three-month accelerated program, um, and then they help you get a job. And and I think what I loved about that job is is education is ripe for disruption. As much as I hate the word disruption, it's one of those aggressive Silicon Valley terms. But it, it is we we've actually always known we've known for a very long time that our current education system doesn't work. We've just had workarounds, like internships, um, you know, or you know, shadowing people a couple of early failed jobs before you find the job that you really like. How many people can say that they really do the thing that they studied in school? Like I actually don't, although I draw on that education all the time. I am not a you know political scientist, I suppose. Um, so what does that mean? That means there's a disconnect between reality and education. Um, and, and what's problematic is that that is one of those exclusionary bars, right, by socioeconomic status, by race, by gender, to say, you know, oh, well, I need to hire somebody and what are the signals I rely on, what degree you did, what school you went to, which is often a function of how affluent your parents were. Um, so we know that and we have ways to identify skills that are really needed. So there's also similarly, um, the World Economic Forum is doing a lot on the future of work and the future of education. So really what they've highlighted is what are the skills you need to succeed in today's economy and in, eco in the economy 10 years from now? Coding and programming is nowhere on there. What is on there is critical thinking, uh, empathy, conversational skill, group, like being able to work and function in a group. So it's really interesting to see, okay, well, how do we not only teach that in school or do we even teach that in school? Is that what's being measured in our metrics of success? So as a very quantitatively oriented person, it's not just about teaching it, it's how do we measure it? Because people will just optimize to, to get, let's say, good grades or to optimize to get the highest value of that number. If it's just a standardized test and I have to do a lot of math problems, guess what I'm going to focus on? Not my interpersonal skills. So we need to optimize how we measure and grade to get at these sort of intangibles, which is tricky. It's not easy. How do we understand resilience and grit? Those are actually the two biggest things we try to look for in hiring people is resilience and grit. I have no idea how to measure that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we'll have to see if anyone is working on that one mm -hmm. specifically. You mentioned part of the anxiety, I think, about technology, about artificial intelligence. It's wrapped up in a lot of the things that are sort of dependent on that. Here, I think in Detroit especially, one of the big conversations is autonomous vehicles. And I also think that uh, across the country, millions of people have jobs that revolve around driving something. This is one of those areas where I think that there is a lot of job-related anxiety that exists that it, it's hard for me to blame people, especially because uh, when you think about someone driving something, it's it's not like a doctor where they, you know, maybe do tons of other things. So how do you explain that? As someone who either drives a truck or a cab or something like that, what do you tell them when, when you talk to them about AI? Yeah, so it's... The autonomous vehicles industry is really interesting because it embodies a lot of the really critical questions we have about artificial intelligence 
and the potential limitations of the technology, but also all of the fear. So all of the questions is embodied really beautifully in autonomous vehicles. So, you know, for, for drivers, I think we are a bit away from having, you know, drivers not having any of their jobs. I will say, though, that trucking is one of the first places where long-haul trucking, one of, one of the first places where autonomous vehicles are being used. However, people are still a very integral part of it. What it's highlighting, and, and I'm glad you brought this up, is this this need for upskilling and reskilling people who are already in jobs. There's so much focus on young people getting into AI. Frankly, I think a lot of them will. Um, and it's great that we are exploring alternative forms of education. However, for adults, you need a very different kind of education. Like if you are in your 40s or 50s, you haven't been to school in decades, this whole idea of like gamification, video game learning, whatever, it's that that's not for you. You probably have other commitments, your, your family, et cetera. It's very, very different from being a 16-year-old kid. So we have to create education intended for that audience because it is our, actually our responsibility. So for corporations, interestingly, um, you know, very many people want to be upskilled in AI. More and more corporations are actually investing in it. Um, so, you know, part of what a lot of these boot camps do, in, including the one I was teaching and, and actually some of our work at Accenture is on how we create employee education programs, because what happens in tech, um, the two hardest things to do are hiring people and retaining people. So in order to keep people, it's not just why, you know, we end up with very inflated salaries as the next person just comes along and says, I'll pay you 50,000 a year or more. And it sounds crazy, but that's actually what happens. So we can't retain talent by just offering more money. What companies realize is you have to build loyalty. And loyalty is built by something like, hey, I'll pay for your education so that you can learn this other new skill. Because you can't just replace people with other people or replace people with robots. There is this intangible thing that people often learn. So let's say you take a trucker or a cab driver and you're like, okay, their literal job is to drive. But there is more than that. There are the interpersonal networks they've built. Let's say you're a trucker and you know that when person X is on the job, thing Y might happen. So you, you have this sort of knowledge of the industry or the roads or the people you work with or your clients or you're like, you know what, I have this rush job to do. I'm going to call up my buddy and I'm going to get it done. Autonomous vehicles don't do things like that. Um, so it is very important to retain the talent and the people. But then how do you augment those skills? There's so much focus on the hard skills, but all of that stuff will be automated away. What's actually quite important are these interpersonal skills that everybody has in their jobs, right? However mechanical a job may seem, there's almost always a human component to it. Um, how do we, again, back to measurement, measure that, value that, and augment those skills that people already have? Yeah, and I think one of the one of the fears as it relates to what we've been talking about throughout the conversation, which is equity and, and so forth, is the people who are going to have to adjust to this are people with the low skills, are people who are not uh, otherwise uh, in highly skilled jobs. They are the ones that are going to be forced to adapt to this. And the fear, of course, is that not everyone will be able to. Absolutely. And what I hate is when tech people like myself come in and say, oh, just do an online course. Like, <laughs> I fully appreciate all of the barriers, it's not just like, oh, go educate yourself and a job's going to pop out of thin air. It doesn't, right? So there's this concerted effort that needs to happen where companies need to actively – so like everything we've talked about today, there are things that need to change about all of it. One, education, being more freely available to people, easier to access, accessible in a way that's understandable to them and works on their terms. Number two, accessibility to jobs. So this is the corporate culture – 
changing recruiting, breaking down barriers to entry, companies actually going out and trying to reskill their lowest skilled workers or actively seeking people from alternative forms of education. Because guess what? It doesn't matter how many boot camps you've taken, how many online courses you have, if all the biggest companies do is say, oh, I only want to hire people from Stanford and MIT, right? So we have to change recruiting. We then have to change the internal culture at companies. So it's not just hiring, it's retention and promotion. The number one ways that companies lose talented women and minorities is not actually from the hiring pool. It, that does happen. But the attrition happens at the top because of retention promotion policies, it, you know, especially as you become more confident as a worker, uh, even if you are a woman in a minority and, you know, you don't see yourself reflected in the space you become more confident of your own skills. And if those skills aren't valued, you're like, well, goodbye. So company culture to retain and keep and value these employees. So I will say that there is a component that individuals need to do, but there is also a, a burden for government and for companies to shoulder as well. Mm. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think people should understand about this or that fits into this conversation? One thing I will always say is that people are empowered when it comes to artificial intelligence I understand how it seems like the scary, far-off thing that a bunch of 18-year-olds in Silicon Valley are doing, um, but there are things that people can do. So part of the talk I'm giving today um, is, is about specific actions you can take. So I worry a lot about how people are manipulated by algorithms, and these algorithms really, they're optimization functions. That's actually what they are. It's not like companies are actively trying to fool you or manipulate you. It's really just they're optimizing. Um, and this is sort of like a negative outcome of not thinking of people as people and thinking of people as numbers. Um, so what can people do? Number one is your data is extremely valuable. It's more valuable than you think it is. So before you share anything about yourself, Think about whether or not it's worth it. It's a transaction. So are you getting value out of it um, That because you are giving something valuable away? Number two is that algorithms are optimized to be hyper-personalized to you as a person. What that does is it makes it harder to change things like reading different kinds of media or being exposed to different kinds of things. But you actually can. So you can start to actively try to think about how your algorithm, how the algorithm is trying to shape you and the actions you can take, in other words, going to different websites, searching for different things, to start molding the algorithm for you. Um, those would be the, the, the two main things that I think people can do to avoid being manipulated by artificial intelligence. Mm. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. That was Ruman Chowdhury, a data scientist and the global lead for responsible AI at Accenture Applied Intelligence. She spoke with Detroit Today producer Jake Neer. Up next, Wayne State is hosting a symposium on the legacy of the Kerner Commission report from 50 years ago. Stay with us on Detroit Today. <laughs> 